Welcome to the Insurance Brokers Podcast with your host, Sarah Myerskoff. This business podcast is for ambitious brokers determined to grow their business. Our guests are highly experienced industry experts and innovators. This is the place to leverage their success, learn how to break through barriers to growth, and discover a community of support and ideas whilst growing your business. On today's episode of the Insurance Brokers Podcast, we are talking to Peter Blunk. Peter is the group CEO of Aston Lark, and he has extensive experience in management buyouts, management buy-ins, mergers and acquisitions, having been involved at the top management level of all. Peter has had an incredibly varied and successful career and is a strong advocate of keeping a client focus within his business, but also personally within his work. His thoughts and advice on business growth, business focus and marketing strategy are insightful and incredibly valuable to growth-minded brokers in the UK. Good morning, Peter. Thank you very much for coming on the Insurance Brokers Podcast. Good morning, Sarah. I'm quite excited about this. So loads of questions for you, and I spent most of the night thinking new new questions up. Cool. But essentially, let's start with your experience of MBOs. Okay, well, I did my first MBO in um, 1999, and it was the classic MBO where a bunch of retiring directors wanted to sell the business, and they wanted to look internally to see whether there was anybody in the company that would be willing to take the business on. So myself, together with some colleagues, went to see the bank, and back in those days, it was literally about just going to being introduced to a um, to a bank and asking them for some money, and <laughs> they stumped up a few million quid, and, uh, and and we did the MBO, and it was obviously when you look back on it now, you realise actually there probably was a lot more to it, but it was certainly very very different raising money for an MBO back then than I think is uh, is the case now. It's a much nowadays, harder now. Well, yeah, when you when you're approaching a bank now, you've got to have really well thought through plans you've got to have a proper vision for it you've got to have you know lots of collateral i think the banks won't lend money now unless you really are putting everything on the line so it's actually it's really quite tough now to organize an mbo and um, it'd be interesting to know whether i'd have been able to do it now um, in the same way as we did in uh, in 1999 yeah absolutely so the senior um, owners management approached internally rather than you approaching it was a bit of both it was uh, us asking for more shares and wanting to be uh, um but yeah we all had a minority shareholding in the business so it was us asking for for more shares and a bigger slice of the equity and it was them and it sort of coincided with them also looking for um you know, for an exit so one of them in particular was it uh, was getting to the um you know it was beyond 60 so we really was looking to retire and the other two were quite willing to uh, um to, to sell it as well so what would you Bearing in mind how hard it is nowadays, what if you were looking or advising somebody who was looking to kind of start an MBO now, what would your Well, it kind advice? of has to be. It depends whether is the push coming from the people working for the client or is the, sorry, for the broker, or is the push coming from the owner of the brokerage? Because really, to my mind, for an MBO to be successful, it has to be not driven necessarily by the, by the owner, but the owner has to be really keen for the MBO to happen. Because frankly, if you own a small broker, you know, you will absolutely, without any shadow of a doubt, you will get more money by selling your business to a third party than you would do by selling it to your management team. So it is, 
you know, other people will come along and pay good money for brokers. You know, we're a classic case in point for that. So for an MBO to be successful, the owner really has to want there to be an MBO because in all probability, the financing of the MBO will probably take the, the form of the, the guys that want to buy the business putting up some of their own money, um, the guys that want to buy the business raising some money from, you know, from a bank, but a big chunk of the business will almost of the money will almost certainly have to come from the owner of the business giving them a what they call a vendor loan note. So basically, the owner of the business saying, "Okay, you can buy the business from me. I'm going to lend you the money to enable you to buy the business from me, um, and you can pay me back over the next four or five years." Because otherwise, there's most people that work for a broker. You know, unless they've born with a silver spoon in their mouth or won the lottery or something, you know, they haven't just got a few million quid knocking around to go and try and buy a broker. And the banks won't lend money in the way that they used to lend money. Yeah, the banks will only lend against a really solid balance sheet or against collateral. So you know, it's a pretty rare circumstance for an MBO to happen unless the owner of the business makes it happen. And is that, um, if you look through time, obviously we're in a consolidated market yeah. at the moment. There's, there's, it's mm-hmm. you guys, DRP, uh, PIB are all up there buying. That's obviously a much more beneficial exit strategy for an owner of a small business. And is that, are MBOs not that? I, I mean, personally, keen? I mean, I would always, an MBO, I think, is, is a fantastic thing to do. I mean, you know, having, speaking from experience, there's a classic dichotomy with an MBO because you know, for a deal to happen, the guys buying it have to see value and the guy selling it has to also think that he's getting the right value for the business. And it's actually quite challenging because the guys buying it, if they are the actual management that are running the business, they know everything about that business because they're running it. So they will know what represents good value and what represents bad value. The guy selling the business obviously just wants to maximise his price. He also knows everything about that business. Getting the two sides to agree a price is really tough. And as I say, I think in in my experience, the only way it happens is actually if the owner of the business really wants it to be. He he really, he just doesn't want to sell his business to anybody else. He wants the business to um, to carry on as it is. And he wants to look after the, the youngsters that are buying the business from him. You know, it has to be very much a, I say paternalistic because they nearly all are men selling these businesses, unfortunately. But it's yeah, it's it has to be a sort of paternalistic approach where the owner wants there to be an MBO. Yeah. I mean, yeah, an owner can go to the market, and there are all sorts of exit options for them. Yeah, they can either they can run a, an auction process, they can just find another broker that they know you know is acquiring and that they like the look of, and just try and do a deal bilaterally. They can sell to somebody from outside the industry. They can sell to another, um, an MBI team, a management buy-in team. So there are loads of options out there and all of them have their own attractions and and merits. If you were a small provincial broker at the moment and you were looking at an exit strategy, what would you go for? That's obviously... I think it would depend. If I had some people working for me that I thought were really good, were great with clients and I wanted to look after them and make sure that they had you know, a great future, then I would certainly try and explore the MBO option. Maybe that's just me, but I'd, yeah, it would be, it'd be really lovely. I mean, I know I've got some, I've got lots of people that, you know, work for me in Aston Lark and, um, and, you know, there are some people that you think, you know what, they're really, they're great with clients. 
they'd be really proud of this business. They'd really take it on. They'd do great things with it. And actually, if I could afford to take the hit, then it would be lovely to organise an MBO. And I think the way to do it would be to get them to go and raise whatever money they can. So, you know, remortgage their houses, you know, make sure they're putting some of their own money in because, you know, you want them to be accountable, re- accountable and really aligned. See what money they can go and raise from the bank to actually to finance the deal. But then the balance yeah, would be me saying, OK, you know, you can buy my shares, but obviously you haven't got the money to buy them right now, but you can buy them off me over the course of the next five years. So agree a price. And then over the next five years, out of the dividends from the company, you're going to be, you know, you're going to pay every penny of dividends over to me. And after five years, you know, I hand I hand you the keys. So I think that would be that would be a great way of doing it. But that's only if you've got people working for you that you think could run it, should run it, and want to run it. That was my next question. What is could, would, and should? Because there's the classic dichotomy I have seen in the insurance mm-hmm. world of being really phenomenal client-facing uh, sales, yep. new business versus the business head. And they are two very distinct. Yeah, I've always been a client person, still am a client person. I still see clients. And I think the best people to run, I, I may be slightly biased, but I think the best people to run a small provincial broker are people who are client people. Because actually, you know, we're all here to fundamentally look after clients, sell business, you know, and look after clients. And actually, so what better person to run a broker than someone that is focused on clients? So that's, you know, it's a personal view. It's not everyone, not everyone agrees with it. I mean, I remember another guy that runs one of the, or that ran one of the consolidators said to me a few years ago, Peter, you've got to drop your clients. You've got to, what, what are you doing still seeing clients? And I think it helps me to understand what's going on in the business, helps me to be you know, relevant when I'm talking to account executives and branch managers and regional directors, yeah, because yeah, they can't pull the wool over my eyes because I know what's going on because I'm seeing clients and I know what's happening with the market. I know which insurers are responding and which ones are doing you know, good things and which ones aren't. And I think that's incredibly helpful. How do you balance that, though, with running what is now a very... We just have, you have to have really good people. And it's, you know, when I say I, I look after clients, you know, a lot of it is the team do the actual work, but they'll just run it by me and they'll just say, oh, well, look, this is what we're proposing for that client. And I'll say, yeah, all right, that, I think he'll be happy with that. Or no, go and do it again. Or no, actually, he'll hate that. So try harder. So, but it, it's just having that visibility of what's going on. And clients like it, frankly, you know, that clients want to be able to phone you up and, and know that you've got an awareness of what's going on. How do you structure your week? Are you quite structured in terms of, I do client on these days, I do we did a, um We did a personality assessment a few years ago. <laughs> I love those. And I came out as being 99% less structured than <laughs> the average population. <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm a nightmare. I mean, I just, um, I, I literally, absolutely, I mean, my, my diary is always full up. Janine, my PA, you know, manages it. Yeah, for me, but no, it's absolutely no. I'd love to say there was a there was a grand plan, but it's not. I'm complete chaos merchant. <laughs> it's obviously chaos that works for yeah. you, though. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, I'd, uh, yeah, the golden rule is clients. Clients absolutely come first, and then you know acquisitions come second, and then uh, um, if there's any budget meetings and so on, then I'll be I'll be um, I'll be somewhere else, hopefully. <laughs> somewhere on a, a yeah. sun lounger. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, having good people around you <laughs> is really difficult I think from yeah. what I've seen and, and actually from my own experience from running non-insurance businesses how do you find them and keep them 
on board because there's, okay. there's a whole culture piece around that, isn't it? And yeah. I, from what I've seen of Aston Lark, you guys have got that right. How? What have you done? I think we've got it right in parts. I think one of the things that we do, we probably comes from my history of doing an MBO. I think when you do an MBO, you get real share ownership and alignment. So you get the key people owning shares in the business. And we've now got that. We've now got 130 of our staff have got shares in Aston Lark. Wow. So they're all proper shareholders. So, yeah, they've got a genuine, real financial interest in making sure the business uh, um, is successful. And I like to actually to bring people on, have them train up, grow their careers with Aston Lark and make sure they know that, look, if you grow your account to X, then you know, we will make you a shareholder in the business. And then, you know, you can actually still build up a real genuine you know, capital asset over time that one day will be enough to pay off your mortgage. It's kind of, you know, getting them to act like owners of their own mm. business. And that's really interesting because that's almost a mentorship in business as yeah. well as the sales. So when you talk about the management buyouts and, yeah. and having the right people, you've mentored them through that process. They understand the process of what comes in, what goes out. Oh, I, th- I think there's a, in the UK, I think we've been, Paul, I, I wish, God, you know, do I wish I'd known when I was 18 what I know now about corporate finance, MBOs, and about the way, you know, the way companies work and so on. It's kind of, you know, most brokers, they leave school, get a job with an insurance company, and then you know, end up finding their way to a broker. And then 10 years later, they're confronted with this opportunity potentially of buying a broker. And they've got no clue about it. I had no clue about it. You kind of have to learn on the job. And you, know, you make so many mistakes along the way that actually if you can work, if so I, I like to try and make sure that you know, the guys that are up and coming or the girls that are up and coming through the business, you, know, you try and make sure they understand about. You know, so we, with all of our 130 shareholders, you know, we have a shareholder conference once a year where we, you know, we show them in detail the finances of the business. So we show them what we're aiming for, what we've got to look for, why, why we're trying to grow, what that's going to mean for the, to the share value, what it's going to mean for them personally, so they kind of get it. Because actually, you know, you don't leave school understanding this stuff. You kind mm. of have to learn it on the job. So we try to make it our job to, to educate all the people that we think are going to be future leaders of the business to understand how the company works, how the finances work, and, and what it means for them as shareholders. And is that born out of your experience in terms of wishing you knew now? Oh, God, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I've just... I used to sneak, in my first broker, I used to sneak around the office after hours to try and find sort of report accounts and have a little, you know, have a little shifty to see if I could find any, any interesting info. You know, <laughs> it was, uh, um, and that's, and, you know, so you, you literally learn by trying to find stuff out. Yeah, nobody took me to one side and said, oh, this is how, this is how shareholdings work or this is how, you know, corporate finance works. And it was at my first meeting with Lloyds Bank when we were, when they lent us the money for the MBO. You know, it was comical when you look back on it. The, the guy from Lloyds Bank finished the meeting. He said, uh, uh, just one thing, Peter, this one before you go. He said, uh, you will pay this back, won't you? And it was, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, but yeah, we, so I had to learn just through, you know, trial and error. And uh, um, I'd like to think that we've got, a, we've got a team of people in Aston Lark that are, you know, getting taught a bit more um, um, structured, in a bit more of a structured fashion. Would you say the MBO was your biggest, le- like in your career, Obviously, learning never stops. Yeah. But where would you say your most concentrated, acute period of learning was, and and what did you learn, and also what what did you do that you wished you hadn't? 
I mean, we'll certainly look, the MBO, the first few years, but actually the first few months after completing the MBO were frankly quite terrifying because, you know, we knew we had to generate X thousand pounds a month to pay the bills and to pay back the bank. And it was scary, but it certainly, you know, got you out of bed in the morning to go and, uh, and you know, win business and, and sell business. So it's first year or two after the MBO, you know, once you got the first year out of the way and you paid back, you know, sort of a third of the money, then by that stage, you know, you, you could relax a bit more and get, get into the rhythm of it. So that first year or so after the MBO was scary. Taking over the running of Oval was really exciting because Oval was in a, you know, it was in a bit of a challenging situation. Oval had expanded pretty rapidly and hadn't really managed its costs very well. Mm. And by the time I took over, it was, you know, it needed quite a lot of trimming but I had a great financial director Ian Storey who was uh, so, so my job was to keep the wheels on the track and keep everyone motivated and positive and and looking for client growth um, and Ian's job was to go around the back and you know hatchet anything that wasn't nailed down to try and uh, to try and cut costs and it was yeah and that worked really well that was an exciting period the joining Aston Scott was incredibly challenging because it was a it was a weird experience because I bought the business with private equity backing in 2015. I knew the business reasonably well, but only from the outside. Mm. So on the first day after after the deal went through, you know, I mean, I turned up at Aston La- uh, Aston Scott's head office down in West Malling, and so I was the new owner of the business, but I was the new boy. I mean, I didn't know where the toilets were, uh, and so it's a really weird experience rocking up at a company that you've just acquired and you know which had 200 odd staff they all knew each other how did you manage that what was your priority in that oh god again i'd love to say i had a structured plan i mean i probably (laughs) just uh, um just winged it i think i mean the first order of business was to get a partner in crime to get somebody on board that i knew i could work with and i was lucky enough to find a guy called tim holland who joined as as cfo and that was incredibly helpful because tim he lived near West Mallings and he was able to sort of, you know, get himself into that office every day. And basically we then started the process of, of, uh, of getting the company to, you know, to where it is today. You've mentioned twice a, a good FD or CFO. Yeah. Would you say that's your partner that you look for? Absolutely. That's the one thing yeah. you really need to have right. It's kind of, you know, particularly if you're like me, if you're fundamentally a client guy and you're interested in, you know, in insurance sales and growth and marketing and you know all the, the the stuff that makes the business grow then you need some you need a sweeper you need somebody behind you to actually to dot the i's cross the t's make sure you're doing everything properly you know you're paying suppliers on time you're playing um, you're, you're collecting debts you're dealing with the bank you're doing all of that you know all of the stuff that frankly if you're like me you don't really want to do so you need to have somebody really good at doing that yeah I think it's true of every every role in business, isn't it? You've got to. I think it's every to... role in life. So even if you look at, you know, for example, my husband and I, polar opposites. Mm-hmm. Could we be the same? No, because it just wouldn't work. The dynamic mm-hmm. wouldn't work. Winston Churchill, you know, everybody's got their partner, and I think it's it's quite interesting. One thing you just mentioned there was marketing. Mm-hmm. So marketing is obviously what yeah. I love. Yeah. What are your thoughts on how necessary marketing is? How have you used it, and what is it to you? I, I mean, to me, marketing is. It's incredibly important. I mean, I, I, I love marketing. I love really, I think when I, when I look at what has really impressed me over the years, I mean, some of, the, some of the marketing ideas that people have had, you know, somebody in a room somewhere came up with this idea, oh, compare the market, compare the meerkats. I mean, what a phenomenal campaign that is, you know, is still incredibly appealing and fun nowadays. And I love the marketing of, I love branding. 
you know, I love packaging. I think, you know, when you, when you look at the way Apple package their products, God, it's enough to make you want to buy a MacBook just to have the sheer joy of peeling off the cellophane the Did way they pack it. Did you know there is a market on eBay and on Amazon where you can buy the packaging without the actual product? <laughs> and the reason I know this is because we bought my daughter a, an iPhone for Christmas. Right. We didn't buy her an iPhone. We gave her one of our old ones that she doesn't know is but old. You one. It. But we packaged it because we're, <laughs> we're those parents. <laughs> I know, right? But it worked. A dream. But a yeah. whole market just for the packaging. But I mean, it's funny. I remember... I used to have a colleague in FMW, one of the guys that was, uh, he was one of the shareholders before the MBO. And he hated spending money. He was was really, really tight-fisted. And I remember we were looking at getting the logo for FMW revamped. And he gave me a real drilling, what a bloody waste of money. What on earth you waste waste this money? Clients don't give a monkeys about that. And then I pointed out to him, I said, so, you know, Paul, you drive a, you drive a, you know, BMW, don't you? you know, what, what, what made you drive a BMW? It's, well, because they're, they're the best. So how do you know they're the best? What's the, what? And just pointed out what was completely obvious. That actually, you know, he used to wear boss suits. He had flashy watch, you know, BMW car. He, he fell for all of the branding out there. And yet you couldn't see that actually, you know, branding is clearly important it's important to everybody and do it's you important think it's important business. small brokers of course so it's important but you know in a different way as a small broker you're you're never going to have brand awareness that the you know compare the markets or whatever are ever going to have and frankly even the big brokers don't have that i could stop 100 people on culture high street and ask them whether they've ever heard of aeon or marsh and most of them won't have you know so even the biggest brokers haven't got brand awareness but what you've got to have is brand quality so that actually when a, com- when, when a potential customer comes across your business, everything they see about you is quality. And, and they think that they're going to, that it gives people a perception of how they're going to be treated. Yeah, we, we have our tyres changed at a local place. Their branding's not great, but the way they present themselves in the market and the way they answer the phone and the way they deal with customers, it's just brilliant. They're just, you know, we would never dream of having taking the cars anywhere else because... They're just so good. You know, they answer the phone instantly. The moment you give them your name, they've got all the details up. They know all the cars. Oh, which car is it? What do you need? Oh, that one. Yeah, fine. We put these on last time. Do you want the same? Everything's up there. And that's marketing. You know, it's how you actually present yourselves to the, to the outside world. And you can be a one-man band. But frankly, if you present yourselves really well and make yourselves look like customers are going to be treated well and properly then I think that's more than half the battle. So if you were an MD and a broker, mm-hmm. I don't know, a million GWP, yep. and not a massive amount of profit, mm-hmm. not really spending anything on marketing, yep. just new business, you know, you've got three account execs, whatever it might be, what would you say they would be a good thing for them to look for, Well, to do? It's the number one, two, and three, and four thing to do is to specialise. It's... You know, when we're buying brokers, we will pay, absolutely pay a premium for a broker that specialises. Of all the brokers we've looked at over the years, the ones that are the most successful, the ones that are the most profitable, the ones that are growing are the ones that specialise. And actually, and it doesn't matter one iota what you specialise in, but just specialise in something, you know, and it could be thatch fireworks factories. You know, I don't really get it, literally anything, Mm. but specialise. You know, I met a broker the other day. I won't say what they do because it's because uh, then you'll give them away. But but absolute niche. 
you know, literally, if you phone them up and if any other company phoned them up and said, oh, can you quote for our insurance? They said, no, sorry, we don't do that. All we do is X. That's all they do. They've now got 10% of their market share and, they, and they've got a clear runway ahead where they know they've got this 10% now and they know that if they, if they crack on doing what they're doing, they'll have 20% market share in about four or five years' time. And all of that is driven by marketing. So all of that's driven by marketing. But, and for them, it's you know, their, their brand represents what they do. Their brand actually says what they do. All of their marketing focuses on what they do. All of their staff only talk about what they do. Yeah, they attend every conference. They're a member of all the trade associations, completely immersed in their sector. And I just think that's, you know, if you're going to, you know, when I see brokers that are fundamentally local community brokers, yeah, that's clearly an option. You know, you can choose to be a community broker. And there are some lifestyle upsides to that because, of course, you can be a community broker and you can make it your what, yeah, you can make it your decision that actually I'm not going to travel more than 15 miles on business. You know, you can choose actually from a lifestyle point of view. I want to be able to rock up to the office at nine o'clock in the morning. I want to be able to leave at five o'clock at night. I want to be able to see 10 clients every day and they've all got to be in the same town. Otherwise, I'm not going to get round to them all. And you can make your decision to focus on a community. And if you do that, well, then make sure your branding reflects it and make sure that your marketing reflects it. And if you say, you know, we've got a branch in Padstow and their USP is, we're in Padstow, you know, and they insure other businesses in Padstow. That's what they do. And it's kind of actually for them, that is their USP, that's their niche. They market really strongly in Padstow. They sponsor local events. Yeah, they're at the local fete, they're at the local school thing, and that's their brand. And that's kind of, yeah, that works for them. What works more scalably, of course, is, is picking a niche or an industry and actually being a, a fantastic motor trade broker, taxi broker, thatch fireworks, factories broker, whatever. And is there a danger if you are the local community broker? And I ask because I've, mm. I've seen the idea is the local community broker. Mm. The reality is general commercial insurance. Yeah. And there's a complete misalignment between who you think you are and who you actually Absolutely. are. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, certainly, look, most of the small brokers we see, when I get called up or get an intro into a broker, oh, yeah, you might want to talk to this broker. And when I look them up on the website and it's Jeff Bloggs Insurance of, you know, small town somewhere and they've got 10 staff and their website says all types, specialists in all types of insurance, <laughs> you know, personal travel, motor, home, business, commercial, caravans, blah, 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 blah whatever. Yeah, my heart sinks a little bit because you just know exactly what you're going to find. You're going to find a, bro- a broker that's buffeted by external forces. You know, their fortunes ebb and flow based on what comes through the door and it's entirely left to chance, completely random, and their marketing campaign might be advertising in the local rag. It's kind of, yeah, that, that's a moribund business nowadays. That's not good enough. You know, if you want to be a community broker, then be a proper bloody community broker. But probably the best advice is actually to look at who are your best clients. You know, do you actually understand a particular topic really well? And if you really understand that topic, well, why not make your business about that topic? If you're in that position now, so you're a small provincial broker, you're assessing your business mm-hmm. and you are a specialist in 27 yeah. areas and your website reflects that, yeah. would you do a branding change so your website reflects the niche even if your actual doesn't yeah. so that you can start to move towards that? My little confession, when, when we were running FMW, we ended up dividing up the business into five niches. 
So we had FMW Transport, we had FMW Construction, FMW Media, FMW Property, and FMW, I think we had a, a general one. But basically we had five niches. So we had, we created specialist teams within the company. So we had about 50 odd staff and very roughly they were divided up into sort of five teams of, you know, of eight to 10 people. And those eight to 10 people only did transport clients. And that, it became really beneficial because when clients phoned up, they were only ever speaking to somebody else that also understood transport. And did you put a marketing strategy behind yep. each of those niche campaigns? Yep. So we had different, different colours. So yeah, the transport team had a, you know, their logo was red, I think, from memory. And then the construction team had a, had a blue logo. So it was, F, it was all branded FMW Transport Logistics. Yeah, the construction team was branded FMW Construction. And you know, we basically, we became a multi-niche specialist because, of course, it's all very well saying, yes, I'm just going to specialise in, you know, shed manufacturers, but there are only so many shed manufacturers. So you kind of, over time, if you, if you become really successful at doing shed manufacturers, you might want to think about also having another string to your bow. And we ended up, as I say, we end up with five strings to our bows of different specialisms. And that's what I find really interesting because if you are eight to ten strong mm-hmm. at the moment, You don't need to have 27 niches. Start with one, build it. But in your five-year trajectory, that's when you start to add in other niches. So marketing becomes the fundamental force behind even your business plan. That's what I find so interesting, but also so frustrating. A lot of people don't follow that. Most brokers are, I mean, there are two types of brokers. There's process-led brokers and marketing-led brokers. And most brokers are process-led they do what's in front of them. They deal with existing clients. And of course, yeah, it's easy to pontificate on, on what a broker should do. But of course, a lot of the time, brokers are stuck in the, in, yeah, it's the classic thing. Most brokers are too busy working in their business to work on their business. You know, if you say to most owners of small brokers, you know, what does your week look like? Well, Monday I'm seeing that client, Tuesday I'm seeing that client, Wednesday I'm seeing that client. So when are you actually planning, you know, what you're going to do strategy-wise? You know, and it's, it's really difficult because actually they're, just, they're so busy just looking after what's in front of them and following their noses that they never sit back and think, actually, we'd be better off focusing on, on X or Y. Do you have a, a strategy schedule, either weekly, monthly, quarterly, whatever it is? We have a, yeah, we have quarterly strategy sessions with our, with our private equity backers. So we're now backed by Goldman Sachs. Mm-hmm. So, we, um, so we get to enjoy the benefit of their wisdom as well. Do you get but, to I mean, go to Tenerife to do it? No, somewhere. no, no, nothing like that. We get to go to uh, um, Goldman Sachs HQ in London. Um, so nothing, nothing so glamorous. But, do, yeah, when, do you get cakes, though? <laughs> oh, yeah, we get okay, cakes. Okay, good. Years ago, when, uh, when we were devising this multi-niche strategy for FMW, we used a guy called Tony Cornell, who at the time was a, sort of an ind- bit of an industry legend. And that was an incredibly helpful session. I forgot how much we... I forgot how much we paid him, not a great deal of money. I think he was actually... It was a sponsored deal from one of the insurance companies. They, they agreed to it. And I definitely encourage any broker to take external advice. There are some really good people out there that have like been Boston there and Tums. done it. Absolutely. <laughs> there, there are people that have been there and done it in the sector that really get it. And they can actually help you look at your business afresh. And actually, you know, for that classic broker that's got 10 staff, you know, they should actually get maybe not all 10 staff, but certainly, you know, who are the, the potential, the movers and shakers in that staff? Have they got, have they got a youngster? Well, for God's sake, drag them into the room as well. You know, pick a day, have a brainstorming session, get somebody else to man the phones for the day. Pick a day where you really look at your business and think, right, who are our best clients? You know, which ones would we love 100 of and which ones would we be happy to see the back of? Are we doing a load of work for clients that are never, ever, ever going to earn us the money? 
we did we made a decision years ago that we wouldn't take on any clients that were going to earn us less than a thousand pounds that's going back god that's going back 20 years yeah so that's probably the equivalent of nowadays saying we're not going to take on any clients that are going to earn us less than three or four grand Mm. and it was quite radical at the time because we had lots of business that was smaller than a thousand pounds but we went to all of those clients and said here's the thing yeah we, we can't give you the service we want to give you because we're only earning 300 pounds from you if you want we can carry on looking after you, but we're going to have to charge you a fee so that we are earning £1,000. Or at next renewal, we'll, with lots of regret, shake your hand, wish you all the best and help you find another broker. And the upshot of that was really interesting. We ended up keeping about 80-odd percent of the clients. Wow. So most clients agreed to pay the money. So we couldn't believe our luck. I mean, the first yeah. year after it happened, it was absolute <laughs> bonanza. We thought, bloody hell, why on earth hadn't we done that before? We lost 20% of our volume and increased our profits by about 30-odd percent, literally just by saying, yeah. And of course, when you do that, you have to get the delivery. You have to be giving a good service to start with. If you're not giving a good service, then it's a very dangerous game to play. But if you if you are confident that you are genuinely looking out, and we certainly, we thought, you know what? We're running around, we're rebroking every risk, doing the very best job we can, but we're only earning 200 quid. We can't do it for that. So. We said to those clients, look, we'll carry on running around for you. We'll carry on doing what we're doing, but we need to earn a thousand pounds. So if your premium's only two grand, okay, well, sorry, we're going to charge a thousand pounds on top so that we can actually, we can do what we're doing. And amazingly, lots of clients agreed to pay it. So a few years later, we upped the threshold again. And that's still the way we work nowadays is that we, you know, you make sure that you're earning enough to be able to give a great service. And there's a whole process thing that comes before that, which is knowing how much you earn, how much time you spend, yep. what your most profitable um, accounts are, how many policies you're holding, yep. all of that stuff. Being able to put your finger on that information is sometimes not as easy as... It's actually, it's a, nowadays, it's a hell of a lot easier than it used to be. I mean, it used to be, you know, frankly, you'd use the inch test. You just look at the files when they're on the desk and actually if they were, um, if you know, if it was about an inch thick file, you knew you had to earn a couple of grand. If it was about a three inch thick file, you had to earn about 15. And it was, uh, um, it was, it was as simple as that. Nowadays, it's a little bit more, um, it's a little bit easier. We use a proxy for, to show us workload. And what I mean by that is we're on Acturis, as a, as a broker system, um, Actuarist records, it's got a thing called the electronic file, so that every single action you undertake for a client is recorded on the electronic file. So we very simply add up how many actions we take on each client's electronic file. We work out internally, so if, our, if an office generates X million pounds worth of revenue and they undertake X hundred thousand client activities, then the average income per client activity is 25 quid or whatever. So then you look at any client's activity record and if you're undertaking 100 actions for them a year typically, you've got to make sure you're earning 100 times 25 quid as a minimum so that you're um, so that at least they're an average earner. Mm. And it just gives you an idea of where there's a problem because mm. sometimes you find that you know, you'll have a client that might be a, typically it's a problem in the haulage sector where you're doing a load of claims work or a load of admin on vehicle changes and, and you're just not being paid for it. And it can lead you to either having a conversation with a client that says, really sorry, but we're going to have to charge you some more money because we're doing all this work and we're not being paid for it. Or it leads you to a probably a more sensible conversation, which is to say, Mr. Client, we're doing all this work, but this is nuts. You know, There's a more efficient way of doing it. Why don't you 
do your MID yourself? Why don't you report claims direct from the roadside, which might actually help your claims experience? Yeah, so it just guides you to take actions to either make sure you're earning enough or to reduce the workload so that you're earning enough. And by reducing the workload, adding value to Absolutely. the client. Yeah, no, I think that's, um, that's a really interesting way of doing it per office. And I can think of some quite easy systems you can put in place, particularly if you're only 10, 15 yeah. strong and and how you can manage that information. Oh, it's actually, I mean, it's one of those, you know, when I give up work as a day job, I'll, I'll probably get, go on the old consultancy circuit, going around to, going around to brokers and uh, um, sharing, uh, sharing all this stuff because it's quite, yeah, it's not difficult. It's not that, it really isn't that complicated. It's just that most brokers haven't got the time. And because how do you help them with that? Because whether you've got the time or resource is a big problem. Yeah. But there's a bigger problem that sits behind it, and it's mindset. Yeah. Because if you can get the mindset right, you'll find the time and the resource. That's the problem I'm facing at the moment. Have you got yeah. any advice to me to help people with mindset that alleviates time and resource? I mean, you, you've just you've got to find brokers that want to achieve something. And yeah, that's look. You're not going to win with all brokers, and there are lots of brokers that have got. Yeah, it is. It's just a lifestyle. And actually, you know, I, I met a broker recently that would be a lovely little acquisition for Aston Lark. But you know what? They're just happy bumbling along as they are they're just they've got their life the way and, and, and you can't knock it in a way they're actually doing you know what they're not that frustrated by their lack of success they're actually quite comfortable and that's probably the biggest challenge to overcome is actually is the comfort zone stuff what about the people that are in overwhelm i really do want to grow this yeah. but i am so overwhelmed by life and everything mm-hmm. that's happening that actually you telling me i need to find someone to do this or i need to process this information ah it's really difficult and it's kind of there's a whole psychology around that isn't there around how to deal with people because it is worry i mean it's you know we talk a lot nowadays about you know mental health in the workplace but you know you see a lot of small brokers that you know are clearly up against it mm. and yet most small brokers make pretty decent margins so they needn't be quite so up against it i think the problem is it's lots of people they live beyond their means and they actually spend too much money and they end up getting themselves into this sort of rat race where they, they kind of have to deliver these results. They end up being too busy because they're working in their business, not on their business. And they can't get off the rat wheel because they kind of have to keep generating the, the revenue because they're, they're overspending. And actually, in a funny kind of way, they need a bit of mentorship that says, tone down your lifestyle. Just get, make life easier for yourself by living within your means and then you can actually take the time out from your business to improve it and get it working properly, which is you know, a damn sight easier said than done. Do you think there's also a piece around not having the right people around you and not knowing that you've got the wrong people around you? Oh, absolutely. Look, I mean, the, having a good finance person by your side. I mean, you know, all my, you know, I had a guy called Paul Esworthy who was my finance guy back at FMW in the day. Yeah, and he was just Mr. Solid, reliable, you knew exactly where you were, he'd tell you like it was, and you just knew that everything would be done properly. And that's incredibly reassuring having people like that. So yeah. again, it comes back to yeah, having a having a good finance person. I think is uh, is really it's important. Key. So what's next for you personally and for Aston Lark? Obviously, you've mentioned Goldman Sachs. What's 2020, 2021? So we've got my youngest is 13. So until she's 18, but I've got five years of graft ahead of me um, <laughs> my we, youngest is four I've got oh, whatever that is a lot of years graft ahead of me so what's what's ahead I mean we are financially we are um, when we did the deal with Goldman Sachs we were at about 24 million EBITDA 
and the plan is to grow to about 75, 80 million EBITDA over the next four or five years. So we should finish 2020. Hopefully we'll be high 30s. So we're on track financially. If we get to 75, 80 million EBITDA, then at that point, you know, that really does, the world opens up for other private equity investors, long-term sovereign wealth funds, all sorts of other ways. Because I'd love to see Aston Lark grow and become frankly, the next JLT, you know, a a big national broker, but crucially a big national broker that always looks and feels and acts like a small regional independent. Because actually in my heart, I'm still the bloke that was running FMW. And actually I want all of Aston Lark's offices to be like mini FMWs, frankly. And where you are sales led, you are focused on clients, focused on niches and genuinely good at looking after clients. Because I think that's where the longevity lies. There's no good trying to take on the comparison sites. There's nothing to be gained by focusing on, or to my mind, focusing on low-value private motor where you're competing with uh, the comparison sites that you know, have really got that niche well and truly under control. SME insurance will become increasingly digital, and I think there's big dangers in that for brokers, but brokers should be right at the forefront of it. You know, Clients want to make life easier and they want to be able to arrange their insurances online, but they need advice. And the big danger is that people will go online and buy rubbish cover cheaply and think they're protected. And then they find out they're not when something goes horribly wrong. I think that's a massive role for brokers in protecting people. But maybe a role that's shifted slightly from where we're at at the moment? I think it's just, it's an emerging risk. At the moment, most SMEs know that they kind of need to take advice on insurance. You know, not many SMEs are confident enough to go online and just buy their cover from Simply Business or whatever. So most SMEs do realise that they need to speak to a broker. But I think brokers need to shout a lot more loudly about the importance of advice and the fact that getting it right, I mean, it's just vital. When you see all the floods that are happening mm. at the moment and you see businesses that will be wiped out if they haven't arranged the right cover, mm. yeah, that's when it becomes, that really makes it hit home. And that's what brokers should be focusing on is just getting out there and proving the value of advice. So for us, if we can grow Aston Lark to be a two or 3,000 strong workforce across 60, 70 offices across the UK and Ireland, renowned for being really good at what we do, really owning the niches that we want to specialise in. So, you know, we're, we're already the biggest broker in motor trade, being one of the biggest brokers in transport, construction, charities, financial institutions, all the areas where we've got specialist teams. Mm. Yeah, the plan is to really own those niches. And basically, we, we will become a very, very big multi-niche specialist, but crucially re- maintaining that culture so that we just, I just don't want us to sleepwalk into becoming like a big corporate because that's not what, you know, most brokers, they haven't got that mindset. And I certainly haven't got that mindset. And I think that taps into the mentality. Obviously, you're a consolidator. You want to buy <laughs> businesses with a mindset which are, by virtue of who they are and how they've grown, exactly that. So yeah. you're a, you are an attractive option for an exit plan because you want to feel that what you've built will yeah. be continued in the way Absolutely. it is. So. Look, I mean, you know, over the last year, I mean, we bought some businesses we're really proud of over the last over the last few years. But I mean, last year in particular, we bought a business called Protein Risk. Mm. It was a Lloyd's broker specialising in financial institutions. Really niche, really focused, really on their game, 
really growing well and you think yeah, that's exactly the type of business we want to buy. We bought Jobs and James up in Birmingham and uh, they, they insure 15% of the UK's rail infrastructure. Yeah, they know everything there is to know about rail companies. Yeah, and it's just really focused, really niche and great at what they do. Mm. We bought rights over in Ireland who are, you know, haulage specialists. And it's, yeah, again, it's, they know what they're doing in that sector. And I think that they're absolutely the sorts of businesses that will, uh, that will do really well in Aston Lark because we will we'll just help them to be, you know, even better than they are today. We'll help them with marketing. We'll help them with new ideas, help them with lead generation, help them with markets but fundamentally leave them to carry on looking after their clients and doing a great job. Fabulous. I think you've got the mindset, haven't you? And you can feel it as you walk in here. Everybody's really friendly. Everyone's really on the ball. So I think that's fabulous. Have you got any maybe three top tips for the small provincial broker now? Oh, get a good FD. Yep. (laughs) Think about really you've got to take a bit of time out from your business, even if it's just a day to really think about what you want to be. And I just urge them, you know, specialising, even if you decide to specialise in being a community broker, but specialising is absolutely the way to maximise the value in your business. Think about succession. So if you haven't got anybody in your business that's going to buy it from you, then you need to plan for your exit. And that planning, you know, you should start that process two or three years before you want to actually retire. So if you are thinking, well, I want to retire at 60 or 65 or whenever, then you need to start planning for it two or three years beforehand. And if you really care about your business and you really want it to stay independent, well, if you haven't got succession in-house, then you need to find a like-minded broker to partner with. So then it's, you know, go and have those coffees, you know, have a coffee with me, have a coffee with Brendan from PIB, have a coffee with Mike Bruce from GRP, see which one you feel most comfortable with. Yeah, there are a bunch of us doing what we're doing. We're all slightly different. We all get on well. We've all got our own business models. And actually, yeah, and we're all, all of those businesses I mentioned, they're all successful in their own right. They've all just got slightly different nuances. And, and that's probably the most important bit because actually you'll get the value that your business is worth. You'll get more value for it if you specialise. You'll get more value for it if it's growing. You'll get more value for it if it's renowned and has got a reputation. So get your marketing right, get your strategy right, focus on growth, focus on specialising in something, and then take your time to actually choose your future carefully, whether it's helping an MBO by nurturing your in-house succession, or whether it's finding the right partner to exit to. And then that's about feeling the cultural fit, I think. Have those coffees with everyone that that you know is buying and and see which one feels like the right fit. I think that's invaluable advice. Thank you very much, Peter. I really enjoyed that. Thanks, Sarah. It was great. That was fantastic. Cheers. Thank Thank you. you.